This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, which is brought to you by ERI Design, a boutique marketing agency with offices in Worcester, Mass., and Portland, Maine. I'm joined in this episode by Chloe Cataldo, who will talk about growing up in Boston during the 80s and 90s as a black girl who was adopted by a white family. Thanks for listening. I got Chloe C up in here. I'm trying to freestyle because I'm with a DJC. <laughs> Yo. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> Better than I can do. Uh, you don't freestyle at all? I think sometimes I'm like Lisa Ray in Insecure. All right. You know, she be rapping in the mirror. And I'm like, <laughs> I really, that's really what we do. But mm. I'm not nearly as good as her. So not really. Oh, <laughs> you be rapping in the mirror. I mean. You know, like, you know how you did it when you were a kid and your rap still haven't gotten better like this, yeah. like that. Got you. Got you. Well, Chloe, I uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast to have this conversation and so appreciate you reaching out. In the last six recordings, I have now connected with two people who reached out to me and said, yo, like, let's have a conversation on the podcast. And in your case, I thought your story was really compelling. So I appreciate you reaching out to say, I want to share my story with folks. How's your day going so far? My day's good. I'm, it's been it's a little busy because so I work for UNH and we're having our huge open house this weekend. So there's a lot of a lot of prepping and planning going on. But you know, it's just part of the job, so it's good. And what do you do at UNH? Uh, so I work in undergraduate admissions. Um, I've been there for about ten years. I just celebrated actually ten years, um, and I work on our events team. So I don't do a lot of the application reading or traveling that the admissions counselors do. I do a lot of the events that we host throughout the year for prospective students and visitors um, to try and get them to campus, try and get them to enroll, and ultimately, hopefully, um, they decide UNH is the spot. All right. So we have a few things in common here. So we are both from Boston, which you will Mm -hmm. talk about in a little bit. Uh, We are both hardcore Celtics fans. Mm -hmm. We also share a love of hip hop. Mm-hmm. And 90s music in particular, because you're a DJ. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the 90s music for me, and I will stand on this. I don't care. I, I I have full arguments with people. For me, there is not a better era of music than that 90s to like early, and I mean early 2000s, but that block of like, the just that like that time period when every time you turned on the TV or you turned on the radio and you were listening to like... WILD or Boston, whatever, 94.5, right? <clears throat> and they were playing Chief Rocker or like the far side. Mm. Just like that era for me is like. Mm. Tell it, no lies told. Mm-hmm. Anybody who follows me on social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, knows I'm always bigging up that era, hardcore. Um, before we talk a little bit more about what we have in common, 
I'm going to ask you the initial question that I ask all of my guests, which is how do you identify? Sure. So first of all, I want to thank you in advance for letting me come and chat with you. Um, I'm very humbled that you were willing to have a further conversation and agreed to do this. So thank you. Um, So I identify as a Black woman with a queer identity. I identify as a mother. I identify as a spouse, um, a sibling, and a daughter. Do you remember the first time you said to yourself, I'm Black, or that an external party told you that you were Black? You know, that's so interesting because I have so many different memories from being younger when it became pretty apparent. And at the time, they didn't seem, I don't know, they seemed normal. But now in retrospect, as I look back, I'm like, oh, those were moments. One of the first times I remember that something was, I was different than other people in my family was when we were, I think we were in Nantucket. I think my my family and I were in Nantucket. And I um, remember my mom telling us we had to leave the store, like we'd been there for a bit. And I think she might have gone back in, actually. And we kind of left. And later on, it became apparent that, like, they did not want my family in there. And that would become clear, you know, when you hear the makeup of my family. But it just, it it sat with me. Like, I don't remember anything else except for how I felt and just being, like, super confused. Um, I also remember we used to travel to Italy a lot when I was younger. Um, and I remember, I, I think I remember this or somebody, or it's been told so many times that I remember that, um, there was a kid who like ran around this like plaza cause they didn't see black people at that time. Like they just never saw black people and was like pointing at me and saying, you know, negra, negra, you know what I mean? Wow. So, and I didn't really think too much of it, but obviously it sat with me cause I remember, yep. you know, I remember enough. So there were many instances where it was like, Hmm. So let's go back to that moment in Nantucket. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. what happened to make you feel uncomfortable or what made you feel like they didn't want your family in the store? I'm I'm pretty sure my mom like was like, we're going, you know what I mean? My mom was very like, but I, I feel like she might've gone back in to say something. That's kind of how my mom mom is. Yeah. We'll say something. Um, So I feel like she might've gone back in and I was aware that something was happening, but I think just, you know, we were just looking around and then all of a sudden, it was kind of like it's time to go, like out of nowhere. Sure, yeah. So I think probably it's it's the feeling of just being confused. Yeah. Also knowing that my mom was irritated at something. And how old were you? Oh, man, I must have been like, I'm just guessing. I'm going to say I was probably like six. So consistently when I talk to my Black guests, they're sharing stories from that young of the moment when they realized that they were Black and it wasn't because somebody said, oh, my God, Black people love you. It's usually a story that's rooted in trauma and I've shared my story enough. And um, at this point I'm like, I need to pull something out of my twenties because I've shared my kindergarten story enough. If anybody wants to hear it, episode 83, rewind a little bit, check out some earlier episodes if you haven't listened. Mm. Now, when you reached out to have this conversation on the podcast, I was particularly drawn to this matter of your being adopted by an Italian family And want you to talk a little bit about that. So at what age were you adopted and what was it like growing up as a black girl with a white family? Sure. So I was adopted, I think I was like three months old. I mean, I was, I was, I was young, maybe a little bit older, but um, right in that, that age. Um, I think I was in an orphanage for a couple months. So it would be back up. I was born in Amarillo, Texas. Um, And so I was there for a bit. And I was actually just telling somebody the story the other day. So it's interesting timing. I was saying like at that time, 
the way that things worked is you kind of were given a name when you entered the orphanage based on like the letter of the alphabet that you kind of came in. So my name for a bit was Tabitha. Oh. <laughs> so, um, but it was, you know, it was just so they could tell us apart. But I was about three months old and then somebody hopped on a plane and pretty much handed me over to my, my parents and that was it. <clears throat> so the first thing I want to say very clearly is that my parents are amazing, right? Like I've seen stories, I've seen other stories and heard other stories from people, other adoptees where like they felt like their parents hid culture from them, yeah. their parents, you know, there's pieces of hard for everybody. Yeah. But in terms of my parents as people, yeah. I couldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it. So there's me, my sister's adopted as well. She's from Seoul, Korea. Yeah. My brother's their biological son. So my brother's the oldest, my sister than me. We're all four years apart. Okay. <clears throat> so the, the growing up in that household was interesting, right? Because it wasn't just me and the other person of color in my family was from Korea. However, because of where we grew up in Boston, it made things probably a little bit easier in some aspects because if you're going to be in a situation, right, where you are in a family that, you know, has multiple different identities, you kind of want to be in a place, especially in the 80s. I was born in 78. You definitely want to be in a place where there's enough diversity around you. So if your parents can't figure out everything, you know, the the, the best thing my parents ever did for me was put me in public school and let me look around and, yeah. and see people that looked like me and didn't try and shelter me and put me in a private school that young or move us to the suburbs where it was going to be harder. So that's the first thing I want to just, you know, be clear on is that that part, they did it, they did it well. And I'm forever, you know, for, feel forever gratitude for them. But yeah, so growing up in a white family was hard though, because my relatives are also all white. Yeah. I'm close with some of them. Yeah. Um, but there were parts of my family that I've never met. And there are parts of my family that like didn't get it. Oh, well, my parents would just be like, too bad yep. to them, not to us. Yep. yep. They would just be like, well, this is our family. So. And now um, you said that your parents had you in public schools in Boston. You grew mm-hmm. up in Boston, which was racially diverse, which you're right about, because um, I lived in Boston, although the diversity was in pockets, mm-hmm. I found. Can you talk to me a little bit about your neighborhood in Boston? Was it predominantly black? Um, if not, how did you experience that? And if it was, how did other Black people receive you as the child of white parents? It's a great question. Um, so I grew up in Beacon Hill. And I'll say that what's, what's interesting is for many years when people would say, where are you from? I never said Beacon Hill. I always said Boston. Mm. They'd say, where? I'd say downtown. They'd say, where? I'd say, in the middle. Oh, yeah. In the, I'd be like, in the middle. And they'd be like, in the middle, where? So finally <laughs> we ran out of like... <laughs> location oh that's awkward yeah yeah and it's because i always associated this bougie black girl sure you can help right and a lot of that had to do with things that i experienced when i was younger and and it's just recently that like when somebody asked me where i'm from i will pause for a second and then just be like oh i was was raised in beacon hill and i still have that hesitant moment of hesitancy now pause for a second now do you ever say yo i'm from beacon hill i rep beacon hill yo (laughs) you know what i'm saying like cypress hill type thing Nah. I have never, I've never in my life said that because they'd be like, oh, okay. The mean streets of Beacon Hill, nah? I've never said that. And if, and if I was going to say it, I would have said it back then because now Beacon Hill is so different. It's so, sure. so uppity right now. Yes, so, like, yep, yep, yep. It's, it's I'm, I'm just messing, by the way. But please yeah, no, continue about the neighborhood you grew up in. So, yeah. So, the thing about Beacon Hill that was interesting is that you're talking about the pockets, right? And there are pockets of Beacon Hill that had a lot of diversity. 
but they were pockets. And so <clears throat> they would be like uh, where my house was directly on the other side uh, was an apartment complex where a lot of people lived, um, a lot of black people lived and it was subsidized housing. And then there was like a few streets over, there was another area, the same thing. Yep. And I would go there and I was so drawn to those two places. I had friends and we were cool, but it always, there was always a disconnect. You know, I always felt kind of like, man, like I'm belong, I'm belong here, but I want to be here. But what are they thinking? When did you start feeling that way? Did somebody say something to make you feel that way? Or was it you looking at other families and feeling like, oh, those families are different than mine. And I wonder what they're thinking about me. I'm just curious to know how that came about for you. I think probably just interactions with people, just like the simple things that families do, um, especially in black families, you know, I just didn't have experience with, but it could be something as easy as, as easy as like going to like my friend's house or going to my friend's apartment building, ringing the doorbell, walking in as like mom's cooking on the stove, you know, older sisters doing cornrows on somebody else. There's music playing. Mm -hmm. It just, it seemed like this place I really wanted to be, but I didn't quite fit, but I kept going back. You know yeah. what I mean? And then on the other side of that, friends of mine would be like, can we go to your house? Can we? And I was always like, no, like, cause I, I just felt like they would come in my house and be like, oh, see, she don't, she can't come. She can't come with us because look what she has. Yeah. 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 So why were you going into that part of town? Like, was it your parents putting you on the edge of the community that you were curious about and saying, all right, hey, do your thing and, you know, see you when I see you. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not joking when I say that in the 80s, right? Even though I was nine years old, I got on a bus from Brighton at 645 in the morning. I took the 64 to Central Square, which was about mm -hmm. 25 minutes from where I lived. And then from Central, I took a train for an hour to Dorchester mm -hmm. and then another bus to go to school by myself. Mm. Okay. So in the eighties and nineties, like our parents were just like, Hey, do your thing. It was the epitome of free range parenting. So I'm curious to know how you got to interact with those neighborhoods. Yeah. I don't think my parents really knew. <laughs> like I would tell them I was going downtown, right? Yeah. I would always say I'm going downtown. Cause I lived really close to downtown. Yeah. Get 10 minute walk. Not even my mom would make sure like, make sure you have a dime. Get, if you need a pay phone, you sure. know what yep. I mean? Yep. Yep. Same thing. I don't think they knew I was there. At some point, they started to figure out that I was kind of wandering off to different places. The truth is, in the 80s, in certain parts, I mean, things were crazy. You know yep. what I mean? Like, yep. you know, Boston, you don't hear a lot of it as much now. But back then, you heard about, like, OB Trailblazers. You heard about, you know what I mean, different things happening. So I think they were trying to toe this line of, like, we need you to be safe. Yep. And also, like, we can't, we're not going to keep you from meeting people. You know what I mean? So they, sometimes they would say, say things like, why don't you invite them over here? But eventually I would sneak out and go sure. seek out these friendships in other places. And I would just, I was drawn to it. I was drawn to everything. I was drawn to the, like the silliest things in the world. I was drawn to people sharing, you know, the same phone and passing it from apartment to yeah. apartment. I was drawn to people having house parties in their house and inviting, you know, just inviting people upstairs. I was drawn to people walking to the corner store yeah. to buy like the 25 cent bazooka gum. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I was drawn to people eating pickles. Remember people used to eat pickles out of the brown yep, bag? Yep, yep. Tried that. I hate pickles. I was one I, of them. I did too. I, I bought them and used yeah. to give it to my friend, but I would just yeah. buy it just to buy it because yep. I wanted it. I didn't even like pickles. But, you know, I was drawn to like those aspects of of culture. Yeah. Um, and so whether or not they knew or not, I was going regardless. I was going to find my way there regardless. And did you ever bring yourself to have friends over your place? 
I did. I had a, a few times, you know, a few times I had like a big sleepover when I was 13 and invited some people over. And how did that go? It was fine. You know, people. It, so the funny thing is the reaction was completely different. Like I remember friends of mine when I had to sleep over my mom the next morning made breakfast, made like a whole bunch of pancakes and stuff. And, you know, we ate on glass plates. You know yeah, what I mean? Like yeah, that's, yeah. So my friends came upstairs and they were like, whoa. You know what I mean? Like I remember having a friend over for dinner and my mom used to like candles. You know, we ate with candles every night. Yeah. And I remember my friend coming downstairs and I didn't even, I didn't even think about it because it's it happened every night. Yeah. My friend came downstairs and was like, ooh, candlelight. You know what I mean? Like this is so fancy. And I'm thinking to myself like, nah, this is just Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah. But yeah. they had the same reaction probably like, wow, like things are really different for her over there too. And they didn't treat you differently subsequently. You didn't start getting made fun of by them. Like when you went into their areas, like, yo, Chloe, you know, she lived different. They didn't other you? Sometimes I did. Absolutely. Um, I absolutely was called an Oreo for many years. Mm. And for, you know, I'm sure everybody can, you know, use their contextual clues, but people thought, you know, black on the outside, white on the inside. And which, which is interesting because as recently as 2012, somebody, somebody told me that like, they were like, you, you know, you talk like, you know, it's like somebody, I was like, I am like, you know, this was 11 years ago. So I'm like, like, I'm 34 years old. People are still saying this or whatever. Yeah, however. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. And so these were black like, folks saying that to you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you know what I mean? Which, which is hurt, more hurtful to be honest with you, because t- tell me how not to do that then. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, I know yeah. the jokes. I know the movies. I watched the videos. I got the right house shirt. I got the eight ball jacket on. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Ooh, you had an eight ball jacket. I borrowed it from my sister's boyfriend. <laughs> okay, because back in the day, people were getting beat up Rob. and killed over that eight yeah. ball jacket. Yeah, I, I remember mm-hmm. that era vividly. Same, same. Yeah, I borrowed it from my sister's boyfriend to wear to school. And then like, that was it. Yeah, the matter of acting white uh, was a big deal. I remember uh, coming home one day, I had just enrolled at a predominantly white school in the sixth grade. So for years, I was at a mostly black school, and then uh, my family moved to Brighton and wanted to keep me in Catholic school. So mm-hmm. I remember my first day at that school, walking into the schoolyard like, oh my God, I'm mm-hmm. the only black person out here. There were two others, but in that moment, I was in shock. Anyway, over time, made it work, made friends and acculturated. And I mm-hmm. came home one day and I was talking to my brother and I said, dude, Yo, my brother, he was four years older than me, or he is four years older than me. He's like, yo, don't you ever call me dude sounding like them white boys. Mm-hmm. And so at 12 years old, I'm like, oh, there's a way that I have to speak yep. in order to be accepted, even at home. And years later, I'd have relatives go clubbing with me. And I was comfortable just being in a lot of different places. I was comfortable being in racially diverse settings because I was accustomed to being around white people. And when I say racially diverse, I'm talking like if there are whites, Asians, black, Middle Eastern, like I was cool. But for some folks in my family who grew up in very racially homogenous communities, black communities, they're looking at me like, yo, how are you so comfortable around these people? And I'm like, why am I weird? Because I'm comfortable or able to be in these settings and not be uncomfortable. I'm still thinking about this matter of acculturation. Mm-hmm. And you talked about what was happening in your community, going into different neighborhoods. I'm thinking about entertainment right now, sitcoms mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned that you were adopted by a white family, 
I immediately thought about different strokes mm -hmm. and Webster. <laughs> yes. And I watched Webster a lot growing up. And yeah. as a kid, I remember thinking like, oh, wow, his parents are white. He's black. Trying to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you watched Webster or Different Strokes. And if you did, did you feel a sense of affirmation? Yeah, that's a good question. So I did watch uh, Webster. I watched the Different Strokes from time to time. I did watch Webster um, when if it was on, but I didn't connect to it. You know what I mean? Like I never I never was like, oh, my God, that's me. And I think part of that is because um, to me, it had like a lot of white saviorism, which mm. I wouldn't have had the language to use that then. Yeah. But that's what it kind of must have just felt. Why like. did it feel that way? Why did the white savior thing come in? I don't know. It felt, like, it felt like they were doing him a favor. I've never felt that for my parents. I never felt like my parents did this to like save me. And so I think I just didn't connect with it because I'm like, it's entertaining, but never saw myself in it. I saw myself in the Cosby show. Um, the great middle show. class. Yep. Yeah. And I feel guilty watching it now, but I, I it's right. a great show. Mm, yeah. Great show. You know what I'm saying? And <clears throat> the middle class parents, um, you know, educated, doing all they can do for their kids, having, you know, children who are all ex extremely funny and smart and able to fit into different scenarios, but also have their own struggles. Yeah. Like the, you know, the Rudy's and the Theo's and the Denise's and the Sanders and the Vanessa's, they all had their own struggles. I saw myself there. And then when they did the, the spinoff for a different world, yeah. my life changed, man. I was like, I don't know what this school is. I don't know where these people go, but I, I was, I was like, I need, I want to go there. I want to, I want to go to Hillman. Right. And so. I, okay. I, hold on. I mean, pause. Mm -hmm. I have an embarrassing story to tell. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be brief. I thought Hillman was a real school for. Oh, I did too. <laughs> That's not, I did too. I did too until like I, don't even, I must have been in college when somebody was like, uh, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I mean, yeah. Issa Ray is still her thing's called Hillman. I think it's Lisa, it's either her or Lena, yeah, right? It's Hillman Productions. So, um, no, I did too, I did too, and I wish it was because I would have gone there, but yeah, I saw myself in those situations because I saw the, the culture that was spreading through those episodes, yep. right? Like, they did a great job of showing fashion. They showed they did a great job of showing like like the haircuts, yeah. the music, the style, the jokes, yeah. you know, the banter. Like they showed culture yeah. in its most prominent, beautiful way, but also in a way that I'm like, I am so familiar with this that yeah. like that's so that's where I saw myself. I was more of a Cosby, different world. And then my, you know, my own like little private show was Punky Brewster, just because I freaking love Punky. That was a great <laughs> show, man. Hey, Every listen, day after learned, school at three o'clock. That's how I learned about the Challenger. It was from Punky Brewster. Yep. So yeah. Maybe the world is blind. Listen. Anything, Next time you come to one of my DJ sets, I'm gonna drop that real quick, just in the background. Yeah. No gonna pick up on it, but you. <laughs> yep. Hey, people will appreciate it. Great I've show. seen DJs cut on the Fresh Prince yep. theme song. And like folks go nuts and they start rapping it. But that's, I mean, it is a rap. And speaking of culture, like, so now I'm thinking about the Fresh Prince mm -hmm. and this matter of people acting white and the way black culture was presented yeah. on TV. So you talked about Different World, um, the Cosby show. Um, now I just brought up um, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I'm thinking of Martin, Living Single. A character that stands out to me right now, I'm thinking of Carlton. Mm. Carlton was probably the most different black dude on TV that I can remember. And I think 
Will Smith was intentionally trying to show that contrast in being more city mm-hmm. versus having these cousins who were not as city mm-hmm. and more suburban and trying to show a range in the black experience. Yeah. But I don't know if Carlton offered a sense of affirmation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they affirmed anybody or folks were looking at that like, I don't want to be gut- that kind of black. Yeah. I want to be cool like Will yeah. or Martin or any of these other sh- uh, characters from shows I just named. So anyway, this is a long way to a question of, as you watch these shows, were you thinking to yourself, I want to be like that person. I want to act like that person. Sure. Yeah, I definitely did. Um, probably a little bit more. Well, uh, when I was little, I wanted to be I, was, I wanted to be Rudy from the Comedy Show. <laughs> When I was older and I started, I mean, a little bit older when I started watching um, like Living Single, I loved Pam. Pam was my, and people actually used to call me Pam in high school for a little bit because I had the braids like her. See um, <laughs> You know what I mean? I tried. And, and, and you know what else, you know who else I used to like try and emulate was Moesha. Oh, yeah. And then in the 90s, like, yep. I mean, she just, like that show too. It, one thing you said about Carlton, which is interesting though, is I think the one thing that people overlook about Carlton is um, that although he showed like a different side of blackness that many people didn't identify with because they just saw him as like a whatever. They saw him as a gumble. I've heard black men be called gumbles. Yes. Bryant gumble. Like yes. anyway, we'll go ahead. He absolutely yes. was. Like, right. Yeah. I will say that the one thing he did do is he stood in he stood in those shoes and he had a presence about him to let you know that he was comfortable with who he was. Yes, he was. Yep. Right. And so I think the one thing that you you did get from him is it didn't matter how many times people made fun of him. It didn't matter how many times people joked on him. He was going to still wake up the next day and put on that polo shirt and those plaid shorts and those penny loafers and <laughs> do whatever. You know what I'm saying? And he, I remember an episode where he even like kind of talked about that. Like you, you, you always make fun of me. You say I'm this, I'm this. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm black just like you. It was actually, I, the episode was when he had applied to a fraternity and yeah. they didn't want to let him in. They wanted to let Will in. Yeah. And Will, anyway, it became this whole thing. And, and Carlton stood up for himself with like, yo, <laughs> I'm black too. Like, knock yeah. it off. I remember that so clearly because that connected with me. Yeah, like, that particular episode connected with me because I remember feeling like, yeah, like it's so it's. I guess it's okay if everybody doesn't see me as you know as one of them. You know what I mean? Still hurts. Sure, it happens. All right. So you learned about the black experience through these sitcoms, traveling into this neighborhood in um, or off of Beacon Hill or around Beacon Hill. Were there other ways that you learned about the black experience or black people? Here's a here's a crazy part. Shout out to my sister. My sister's Korean. I mentioned that a few times. <clears throat> Growing up, people didn't believe she was Korean because she just has different features. Yeah. Beautiful woman. I mean, my sister, I love my sister to death, my brother too. But my sister and I were really close when I was younger. And even though we were four years apart, she was never embarrassed of me. So she would take me everywhere she went. And the reason why that's amazing and so cool is that my sister, pretty much all her boyfriends were black. You know what I mean? Her husband's black now. Shout out to my brother-in-law. I love him to death. And so she would have, she'd be going to house parties in other places. She puts a little makeup on me to crimp my hair, yeah. you know, put on a little suit or whatever we wore in the 80s, 90s and let me come with her. And yeah. I would be exposed to like culture like I've never seen before. Music like I'd never heard before. And then she would have like her boyfriends would come over. And at one point she was dating this dude who was a um in a rap group in Boston who was it was a pretty popular group at the time. And I would just be sitting there like listening to his music and then stealing his tapes. So that's mm. the first time like I heard the first time I ever heard like D Nice call me D Nice is because I stole his tape. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The first time I ever heard um, leaders in this new school is because I stole his tape. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I was in there. You know, Hold up. Are you sure you want to admit all of this now? Because somebody listen, might come for you for these tapes. Do you still listen, have these tapes? My sister, my sister. Yeah. No, he he knows. He knows. Okay. If he wants them back, he knows where to find me. All right. All right. OK. What's <laughs> beef? Continue, please. He knows. He knows. My sister knows. And she still be asking for her CDs back. But ain't happening. Yeah, so I, I was I was so lucky that my sister was who she was because she was immersed in culture. She went to Latin, Boston Latin Academy. I mean, not Latin, not Academy. She went to Boston Latin School. Yeah. And so in Boston Latin at that time, too, I mean, very bright minds and also culture central. Sure. Right. So my sister always had the dopest sweatsuits, the dopest sneakers, the dopest, you know, sunglasses, the dopest jackets. And when she would leave for school, I'd steal her stuff, put it on, yeah. go, to, <laughs> go to school. But I say all that to say, as as ironic, if it is ironic as it is, to say I'm get I got black culture from my Korean sister. The truth of the matter is, if she was not in that household, I'm not sure how long I would have I would have ah. taken to seek and find it. And how did she find it? I think just I think just growing up in the same areas as we did, and I think she was just drawn to it too. I mean, she had her phase where she like skip row or whatever, but I think yeah, yeah. I think when she got to like high school after she left Timothy and then went off went on to Boston Latin, her friend group was all black and it pretty much still is. And I think because most of her boyfriends are black, I think she just fell in love with and it sounds crazy because you don't want to make it sound like, oh, you know, culture appropriation. But no, she fell in love with culture. And yeah. just so happened to be black culture. Yeah. Right? And so she fell in love with the house shirts and all of that stuff that makes up culture. And I was sitting here watching her like, well, I want to be like her anyways, because she's my sister. But also, it, as it turns out, she is my pathway into finding and understanding mm. more. And so I'm so um. thankful for her because she could have also been like, girl, go home. Like, she'd be like, come on, come with me. Let's go downtown. Let's go, you know. Yeah. And did you find DJing through one of her boyfriends? So her, the boyfriend that she, um, the, the, was the rapper, um, he did like a little bit and I, like we, I would go listen to his, him and his group sets and they had a DJ at the time too. And I was like, damn, but to be honest with you, I actually, <laughs> what's crazy is I actually first learned about DJing from my brother. My brother, um, <clears throat> was in a band when he was in high school. And then later on he started DJing. Yeah. And at some point after a while, like him and his wife used to do it. And his wife was just like, I don't like this, like whatever. So my brother one day was like, Hey, you want to come on some of these things with me? You know, it was like high schools, bar mitzvahs, proms, nothing like, but he's like, do you want to come with me? You know, he had a whole light show. He's like, you can do the lights, you know, whatever. I was like, sure. I fell in love. I fell in love. And I was just like, just the environment, just watching how you can control a crowd with, you know, the touch of a button at that point, because we were doing CD to CD yeah, changing. Yeah, yeah. No fades, no horrible transitions, but whatever. <laughs> um, so my brother was actually the first person to open my eyes to it to be like, wow. But I already loved music because I loved Black culture and I loved hip hop and I loved, you know what I mean? Like I loved DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Best Friends. I think I mentioned like first tape I bought was The Boys, yeah. you know, Die in My Heart. You know what I mean? Like I loved music already. How old were you when you started DJing? I I'm not going to count the part with my brother because he then kind of stopped and was like, yeah. you could have the business. And I was like, eh, I was too immature to figure out how to get my life together at that point. But now I've only been doing this like more recently for two years. Really? Oh, wow. I've heard one of your sets. You're really good for two Thank years. You. I appreciate yeah. that. Okay. Right on. Thank you. The last time I saw you in person, I asked you a question that I'm going to ask you again here because I really want my audience to hear your answer. So as a DJ, mm -hmm. you're not just playing music. 
you're also DJing from the vantage point of who you are. And so how does who you are bleed into your sets? I'm so glad you asked me that again. Because the first time you asked me, I was like stuttering and all types of... Man, I thought it was a dope answer. Give yourself credit. Well, thank you. I was like, ah, I listened to it back. I'm like, ah, so thank you. Um, But my answer is different now because I had time to sit and really think about your question. And here's what I'll say. Everything about my upbringing and who I am as a person is why I DJ. And that was a revelation that came to me probably like a year ago, right? That like, we've talked a lot about the different aspects of growing up and the different, you know, I don't want to say hardships, but the different hards that we all go through and never feeling like I was really black enough to be with the black kids, but also too black to be with the white kids, not really knowing where I fit, but knowing what I wanted and knowing that I understood culture, but not feeling like I was believable. And I think what DJing does for me is it allows me to talk to my young self and be like, let it go. Like you, you do understand culture. Like you don't have to fight that fight anymore. You don't have to prove to people anymore that you're black enough. And when I do my sets up here, especially, and I start my sets and I look up and I see all these black people in New Hampshire in the first place that I didn't know existed for the, you know, however many years I've lived up here. I was like, where have all y'all been? Slowly but surely we're populating it. I'm like, populating New Hampshire. Where have you all been? I remember looking up when we did um, Beyonce night at 3S the first time and being like, wow, this is like half a room of black people. When we did hip hop night back in August, it was like 75% black people. And I'm not, I'm not even kidding. Yep. But I say all that to say, <clears throat> when I look up and I see people like dancing and I'll make a transition to a different song and they're like, oh, that's the one, you know what I mean? Or you hop off stage and people will stop me and be like, Yo, you, you know, you were really good. Thank you so much. People will be like, I came to your last thing. Somebody said to me, you know, thank you so much for creating this vibe up here um, in New Hampshire. That has really stuck with me. The person who said that to me, because what I'm thinking and what I want to say back is y'all have no idea what you're doing for me. You are allowing me to finally feel like I belong. You're allowing me to feel like I have mastered it. You know what I mean? Like if I I love my my job as a DJ to make everybody dance, make sure everybody's having a good time. But for me, knowing that I can do that in a room of um, black people specifically, but people of color, knowing that I have the right songs at the right time and I've created the right vibe for me is like way, I don't want to say way more important, but it means so much to me. It means it means so much to me because I'm able to forgive the part of me that was so lost and sad for many years feeling like i didn't get it or i did get it but people didn't believe me if that makes sense yeah very much so and that was such a mic drop statement that i should have just ended the episode there however i'd be remiss to not tell people how to reach out to you if they want you to ever dj a party for them yeah i mean if i saw on instagram dj ma'am 19 i'm on twitter DJ Ma'am 19, although I never checked Twitter, so Instagram for sure. Um, DJ Ma'am New Hampshire gmail.com is my email address. Keep a lookout. I do a lot of stuff um, at 3S with DJ Scooch. Shout out to DJ Scooch for putting me on and letting me rock with her. Got to give her her flowers before we log off because if not for her, I'm still trying to climb the ladder right now. She put me up front and in the front and was like, boom, go. Culture is beautiful and it's also broad. That's no different when it comes to black culture. Chloe and I discussed a sliver of the black experience and really the African-American experience in the Northeast. We talked about hip hop, sitcoms, and the feel of a black neighborhood in Boston. 
By no means did we discuss the extent of black culture or intend to do so. We couldn't do that in a 35 minute episode even if we tried because it's so vast. Black is beautiful in its broadness and if we can collectively accept that, then we are doing our part to allow black people to grow and evolve as individuals. Special thanks to Chloe for kicking it with me on the podcast and being vulnerable and sharing her awesome story. If you're feeling the podcast, please follow it on Instagram at identity underscore n underscore me. And if you're really feeling the content, follow and rate it on Spotify. Share it in your circles too. Until the next episode of Identity and Me, keep reflecting. Identity and me.